So beginning in verse 11 again, Colossians chapter 1, we pray that you may be invigorated and strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory to exercise every kind of endurance and patience, perseverance and forbearance with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified and made us fit to share the portion which is the inheritance of the saints, God's holy people in the light. Verse 12 in the ESV is simply giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So as Paul continues to pray for them and is looking for God to answer this prayer, again he mentions the giving of thanks. So the giving of thanks um, means exactly what it sounds like it means, to be thankful, to be grateful. Uh, the idea is being, uh, uh, being well-pleasing. It indicates also the way that it's written in the Greek, it indicates that there's an obligation that we are obligated to be thankful to someone for a favor uh, that is done. Uh, the verb that is used describes the awareness that God's grace works well. So sometimes we can miss that when we, when we read through the scripture, and that's where having various books or commentaries that sometimes explain the Greek can be helpful, because you don't necessarily get that idea right away just from the English, that there's a sense that we're giving thanks to the Father because we're obligated to do that. Now remember that to be obligated to give thanks does not then take away from the genuineness of our appreciation. But there's definitely this idea that, that um, we have like that responsibility. Kind of like, uh, I mean, I, I know I do this a lot, I, but I guess it's what we do. When, when we raise our children, uh, oftentimes when we take our kids, whenever we go somewhere and someone does something, what do we always tell them? We tell them you should say thank you. In fact, we tell them that because there's a sense that they're obligated. Now, the obligation is a little different because we're just talking about being polite in society. Uh, but even in a restaurant, if the waitress brings you, like, you know, when the waitress brings you your drink, even though that's kind of their job, we don't say, well, that's your job. You know, what we say is we say thank you. That's just what we do. We want our kids to do the same thing. And so there's that sense of obligation. So this would obviously be much stronger than that uh, because of what he's talking about. But I do think it's important for us to remember as Christians, um, so that if there's a lack of thankfulness in our life, we need to recognize it that that indicates something is amiss uh, with us and, and uh, that needs to be addressed. So again, as Paul prays for them, uh, the idea again is that as God gives them strength and as God empowers them uh, to, uh, uh, to fulfill the responsibilities he's given them, along with that is the giving of thanks to the Father. So it is, it is where we are thankful for God's good, good grace. Remember that the word grace is used a great deal. So that's always emphasizing not only the good that God does for us, but the idea that it's, it's undeserved and also unearned. So we haven't earned it. It, it comes out of God's goodness towards us. Uh, and part of the comfort of that should be that we don't have to worry about, and not, not maybe some of my people might worry about this, but... The idea is that we're not somehow thinking that I have to perform for God to do these good things for me. God is good to us, and so you hear people sometimes say, well, God is good all the time. And if we become aware of what's going on in our life, we realize that God really is, uh, and these things that we receive. So don't, you know, the world sometimes will think, when they hear us talk this way sometimes, and, and I've, I've read this when I read some books written by secular people who are looking at Christianity, Sometimes they think that we have this very negative view of life and that 
sometimes people say, well, all the church does is talk about sin and how bad we are. Now, we do speak about that a lot, but, but we don't do that because we're trying to put people down. We don't do that because uh, we're trying to be negative. We're trying to be realistic and understand what God's standard is, which is perfection. And we need to be aware of our sinfulness, of our sin. And so then that causes us then to be more grateful for the good that God does for us. Uh, it would keep our ego in check, so to speak. You know, we don't really, when we pray, we don't demand that God really do anything for us. Even sometimes uh, people write books on prayer and they talk about reminding God of his promises. And that's okay. Just remember that you're not reminding God of his promises because he's forgotten. Right? Because he hasn't forgotten. And we're not reminding God of his promises because it's a way of trying to manipulate him to do things for us. Normally, and, and I think more so, we remind God of his promises because it encourages us. It encourages our heart. We're, we're speaking to the God of the universe. And as I am reminding, in a sense, God of his promises, my heart is encouraged because I'm hearing, with my own voice, really, what God has promised he's going to do for us. And so there's encouragement with all of that. So we are to be grateful, obviously, uh, when we acknowledge that the Lord always brings what is favorable uh, in line with his eternal purposes. Our response, again, is to be thankful, and that's to be really continuously. That's to kind of like be our lifestyle. So that also goes then hand-in-hand with the way that our uh, daily attitude should be as far as our interaction with people as well as our prayer life with God. Uh, people who are thankful and grateful for what they have, what God does for them, tend to be individuals who are not going to be demanding of others. We're not going to be in a bad mood. We're not going to be cynical. It doesn't mean that we, we, won't, we can't be tempted to go in those directions, but it, it keeps, uh, I think, our attitude and our spirit in a right frame. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking at the world with a particular paradigm, right? Through the lens of the Word of God. And uh, I guess it'd be kind of like, uh, sometimes people ask you, are you a, a uh, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty kind of person? So I'll give you my take on that before you tell me what you are, uh, if you decide to do that. So my take on that is this. If you are an individual who believes that the glass is half empty, then that normally means that you believe you're entitled and you're arrogant and there should be more in the glass. Right? If you are a person that the glass is half full, in my mind, that's an individual who recognizes that we deserve an empty glass. I am grateful that the glass is half full. That's more than what I deserve, and I'm happy about it. All right? I'm thankful for it. So that's my view. So if you've always told people that you're kind of a person whose the glass is half empty, reevaluate that. <laughs> All right? uh, not that everybody would think about it the way I do, but. You know, I think, I think that at least leans in the, right, uh, in the right direction. So one of the things also then in this verse that we should continually give thanks to, the, to God the Father for is he uses this word here saying that he has qualified us. He's qualified us. He's made us competent to partake of the inheritance. And we'll get into what the inheritance is in a few moments. But the idea is that he qualifies us. He makes us qualified. Remember, we're not qualified to inherit. Um, before we become believers, we're outside the family of God. We are the enemies of God. I know sometimes you hear people say, well, we're all children of God. That's actually untrue. We are not all children of God. 
we are all the enemy of God. We become his child when we become believers. Right? John 1.12 tells us that to as many uh, who have uh, uh, believed his name, have become children of God. You have to become his child. And that happens by what he does for us. He adopts us. And that's where all that language comes in as far as being a child of God. Adoption is a very strong, powerful concept uh, that is in the Bible. And it is to impress upon our hearts that to be adopted is not only a very important and a big process, but one that is not undone. It cannot be undone because it rests on the authority and the power of the one doing the adopting, which is God. And so uh, the idea is, is that God has qualified us. He's put us in a position. And then, of course, because our sins are forgiven, uh, we are now qualified in that sense to inherit what God wants to give to us. Uh, and, and like I said, we'll get into some of the particulars of that in just a few moments. So the word qualified, again, means to make fit. It means to make adequate or to make sufficient. Uh, to make sufficient in the sense of filling a specific requirement. So we would say then that God qualifies me because the specific requirement that God has for us to live for eternity with him is that we possess perfect righteousness. And no one has that. But again, remember, we are given the righteousness of Christ. So I am now made by God. He, I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And so now I have fulfilled those requirements. Not again because of anything I've done. God has done it for me, but I have now been uh, rendered fit by God. I'm now, you can even use the word capable if you want when it comes to that. So I've reached a place of sufficiency. Um, I've been made qualified. In that sense, I'm competent. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you read that verse in verse 6, the idea is that, that uh, with the word qualified is to equip one with adequate power to perform the duties as servants of the new covenant. So if you kind of back up from just the word and look how the word is used in the New Testament, then there is this idea that we're made or that we are qualified to inherit what God wants to give to his people. And he also um, prepares us and uh, makes us fit and makes us uh, sufficient to serve him in the way that we should serve him. So God God is doing all these things for us. Uh, And that's why when we talk about serving God, it's never, we should never think in terms that only certain people can serve God. Everyone is is to serve God and recognize that serving God is not limited to just what happens within the, within the, within the walls of like the church building. All right. We are serving God in many different ways. So I am serving God by when I study and when I teach, I am doing that. I am serving God when I pray for others and with others. I am serving God, but it's not limited to that. If you are helping a widow in the church, you are serving God. If you are helping a family who is in need, and like, like in our church, if a lady has a baby or someone in the family has surgery, uh, we oftentimes for one, two, three, four, five weeks or so will bring meals to the family so they don't have to cook and kind of relieve them of that. Okay, that's serving God. We, we're helping them, but we're serving God. We're doing it uh, as unto the Lord because we're believers. Um, you just help someone out or you just... Or you, maybe in church you just see someone who maybe doesn't really know anyone. You become their friend. You're serving God. All right, that's, what's, that's what's to drive us. So serving God is not then just limited to certain things. Um, people who work in the nursery, they're serving God uh, when they do that. that. That enables families. You know, There are times when you know, a family, they may be new believers and they, they need to 
not be distracted uh, during the service because they need to hear what the, the word being taught. That's helpful to them. Uh, and um, so there's a lot of ways. It's, it's almost, I guess it would be endless of the different ways that we can serve, uh, serve the Lord. And so God then is the one who is made us sufficient to do that. So we should never then allow the attitude to creep in that I'm inadequate or there's nothing really I can do. Um, it, it's, it may be overused, the idea that there are no insignificant or tiny jobs you know, within, the, within the Christian family, but that's actually true. You know, it, it's kind of how the body works or how family works. Every aspect is important. Um, and so even if you think you're nothing but a big toe, just remember that if you don't have a big toe, you can't walk. All right? It, it, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but back in the days of King David, when you would go to battle against the enemy, if you would capture the general or the kings alive, what many armies would do for fun is they would chop off the big toes of the king. And then while they're sitting around the campfire eating and drinking, they would ask them to walk or dance. And of course they can't because that big toe is the major reason why you don't fall over when you walk. It, it really helps with balance. And so it's entertaining in a cruel way. <laughs> in a cruel way, but it's entertaining. Uh, and I guess when they get tired of it, then they kill them. But the point is, is, is so even if someone thinks they're just a big toe, uh, that's, again, that's not insignificant. Every part really fills a, fills a very important function um, in the body. And so, um, A, not only do we need to remember that for ourselves when it comes to whatever it is that we are doing or the things that we do, but then also remember that when it comes to how we treat other people, that we need to treat others with respect uh, and all those things because they are made in the image of God and also because they are a valuable part of the family. And just like in our own families, no matter how old or young people are in our families or how um, gifted or, or ungifted they may be, we believe that everyone in our family is important. And they are, every single one of them. They're, they're important um, because they're, they're part of our family. We love them and care for them. So that's the idea um, in all of this and how God wants us to serve. So again, the word qualified, then uh, the way that it's used here in, the, in this uh, passage, it's what we call the aorist tense. Not that you have to have that memorized. But what that signifies is it is effective action at a point in time. It is a past completed action. So the idea is, is that you've been, you have been qualified by God. So that happened in a moment of time in the past and it's complete. It's not going to be undone. It's not that you're halfway there. You never have to think, well, I know God's working on me and I hope that in the end I'll make it to heaven. Okay, that, Christians should never speak that way because that's not how it works. What the way it happens is that when I come to Christ, I am transformed at that moment. The Spirit of God comes and lives in me at that moment. At that moment, my sin is forgiven. At that moment, I am given the righteousness of Christ. At that moment, I am adopted by God into his family. At that moment, at that exact moment, I am now fully qualified to inherit what God is going to give to, to his people. Uh, and so we never have to have this. So even when we sin and do wrong, you know, we don't have to have this fear uh, that somehow we've lost something or, you know, whatever. Even though we talk about progressing in our lives as Christians 
and we are progressing. We should be becoming more holy. That should be the basic movement or, or flow of our life. Uh, if you've been a believer for 10 years, then the bottom line is, is that you should be more holy and more Christ-like than you were five years ago. You know, that's kind of the idea. So, again, the idea is that when an individual by faith receives what, is, what was prepared from the foundation of the world, they are made sufficient in Christ. And so, again, they are qualified. Uh, another term we use in the church is we talk about entering the Holy of Holies. Uh, that makes reference back to the tabernacle or to the temple. And the idea with that is that uh, in the Old Testament, when you read about the temple or the tabernacle and you read all about the different spaces in the uh, tabernacle, there was a place called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and no one went in there except for the high priest, and he could only go in once a year. You go any other time, you die, right? Because that was basically the idea that was where the presence of God was. For the believer, we now, metaphorically, but it's still legitimate, we can enter the Holy of Holies. We, we now have direct access to God himself. When we pray, God himself is, we are, we, you know, we, we are the audience, um, and God is listening to us as we pray. And so that's the idea uh, with all of this. Yes, Mike. Uh, John McCarthy was saying how um, people think when they sin, they lose fellowship with God. They don't never lose fellowship, but you don't feel necessarily close to God. Yeah, I, I disagree. I disagree with that. I disagree with him on that. I think we, we do lose fellowship. You lose your weight. You do. And that means because you've lost fellowship. Yeah, now, I, I'm not sure why he. Huh? You still have a union, permanent union. Yeah, well, see, fellowship doesn't negate that. That's, that's a different thing. Uh, that is, yeah, yeah. When you when you're out of fellowship, that means there's tension between you and the other person. Obviously, with when it comes to God, we're the ones that have moved. We've sinned. So yeah, we're out of we're out of sorts. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we need yeah, to make sure that it gets you know dealt with, yes, kind of a thing. All right. The next uh, the next thing in that verse then is trying to figure out what is inheritance. Uh, it's kind of an an odd word in a sense uh, because. The word, the Greek word, which is kleros, means a small object or a pebble or a piece of wood that was used in casting lots. Uh, casting lots was a way that uh, in ancient days they would sometimes make a decision. Um, you do want to make a deal with somebody, you cast lots. It's kind of like throwing dice, but it's not a dice game. Um, and the idea, if, if it comes up a certain way, depending on what country you're in, that would de determine, I guess, what the final result was going to be. Whether either there would be a deal, what kind of deal, that kind of thing. Um, uh, so the idea with, with the inheritance is that, and the reason why that term is used, is that we're not really casting lots to see if, we're, if it's going to fall in our favor. It, it has. God has given that to us. So, so it's not involving that pagan practice, even though it's kind of a, a very odd word to use in that sense. And that's where sometimes when it comes to the Greek language, sometimes the Bible will give a newer meaning to a word uh, because it's used in a different way. And so sometimes that's what takes place. So you have to be, so when you look up the words in, in Greek dictionary, sometimes it, it can lead you a little bit astray as to maybe what something is, is, uh, 
is doing. But when it came to the casting of lots among believers, because sometimes they would do that in the early church when they were looking for a decision from the Lord, the belief was is that God was guiding the decision that the lots would make. All right? And you see that in Proverbs, uh, that you know, he's the Lord of the lot. And so we don't do that now. Well, if that was done, they didn't have the revelation of God at that time. And so the idea here then with this is that God is this directing the casting of the lots. So it's always going to fall in our favor. And so you're never going to be outside um, of these things. So in, um, in Acts, it reads this way. Jesus, uh, we know that Jesus sent Paul to the Gentiles and, and Jesus instructed Paul with this. He says, so that you may open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So that's just to show you again the word inheritance or the word kleros. And again, there's this idea that's throughout the scripture about these things that we're going to receive from God. So what is inheritance? So the inheritance is, uh, is basically a, it's, a, it's a promise for us as believers. And the word simply, again, means just in, inheritance in that sense. And it, it, the promise refers to, first of all, the possession of our salvation. Uh, so it's not some big involved thing, though it's more than that. Uh, but it is definitely salvation. That is the beginning of all these things. What we're going to receive from God in the future, we technically have received now in the sense that it belongs to us, but we don't yet possess it. That's kind of the idea. So it would be something like this. So when I, so when I would buy Christmas presents for my children and I would wrap them, those gifts belong to my kids. They hadn't received them yet. You know, they, they didn't possess them yet, but that was theirs. It was guaranteed that they, that, that, was, that was going you know, what, was, what I had gotten for them belonged to them, and that was guaranteed. Nothing's going to change that. We just hadn't gone through the formal process of them opening the gift and, and, and taking possession of it. So that's kind of the idea with this, is that I have salvation, and there's these other things that God's going to be giving me, and I don't have possession of them yet, but it's guaranteed. Nothing can change that. So the believer's inheritance, inheritance then is described um, more specifically as being that which is eternal. It is joyful existence with God, which is what salvation is. Um, we are promised an inheritance that can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. Uh, it is kept in heaven for you. Uh, we inherit the world to come, which is a guarantee for all those who belong to God's family. Sometimes we talk about the new heaven, the new earth. We we are already considered citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the new earth, the new Jerusalem. All that belongs to us and that can never be undone uh, by anything that we do or by anything anybody else does. And that's what we're promised. Again, well not again, but if you think about it, when the gospel was being preached in the early church and really throughout most of history and even today in most of the world, a very large majority of people who become Christians are people who are poor. They don't, they don't have much. They're not, they're not the real rich. It doesn't mean that there's no rich uh, believers. There are. And Jesus did say that it was easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God. So it's difficult for those who are rich. But it's very appealing to the poor. Remember that, that during, the day, during the Old Testament days and 
in the times of the early church, most countries, there was no such thing as a middle class. Remember, the middle class is actually a very uh, new idea in the history of the world. In our country, a majority of individuals belong to the middle class. It's a wide range of, of income, but there's, there's a limit to it to where once you get past a certain point, you're considered rich, and there's a point down here when you're considered poor. So the middle class is this very large range, so we're, we're very accustomed to that. But in, uh, throughout most of the world, most of the time, what you had was you had the poor who basically what we would call check the, sh they live check the check. It would never be different for them, ever. And they barely make it. And then you have those who we would call super rich. There's nothing in between. And so the gospel then, when it's going out and we talk about the things that, that we're going to inherit through Christ, it wasn't appealing in the sense that people thought, oh good, I'm going to get all this money from God. But there was a great sense of relief and excitement that God had not forgotten them, that this life, which has a great deal of suffering and difficulty, was going to become completely different, and I was going to live in all of eternity with God, and all of my needs will be met all of the time. And so this time of suffering or difficulty that I'm going through is limited. It's clearly God's will because it's happening. Most of those who are poor throughout the world, they actually accept that. They don't, this idea of, I don't know why God doesn't meet my needs. I don't know why God doesn't give me the new car. I don't know why God doesn't let me get a new refrigerator. Most people in the world don't think like that. Only it's kind of a, only Americans do that <laughs> uh, kind of a thing. And so uh, it's very appealing in that way and very appealing to them psychologically as well because they now know they belong to a family. They know there's going to be justice. Um, all the things that we sometimes even take for granted, which don't exist in the world, is all going to, be, is all going to exist in perfection in the new world. And, and so people were very excited looking forward uh, to the coming of the kingdom and being told that you had a part in it, even though in society they were looked down upon as being may, maybe dirt or what have you. So Paul then uses the word inheritance here as a metaphor. He uses it a lot, more than uh, any other New Testament writer, which would make sense because he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. Uh, for him, the object of the inheritance really is the kingdom of God, which is a very broad term that we use in the Bible. Um, Paul does not really get into a whole lot of details as to, as to exactly what constitutes the believer's inheritance of the kingdom. The kinds of things I've talked about are some of the things that we glean from what the scripture says. Um, but again, he was making it clear to them that there, there is one class of person in the family of God, and we're all children. There's not a higher class and a lower class or a rich class or a poor. There's no class. It's just all one. There are different rewards. We know that. Re rewards are given for the things that we do as believers. And some will have a lot, some will have little. But that never designates anyone as being better than anybody else. And they're never a different class uh, than anyone else. Because everyone is saved the same. Uh, remember that, um, not that you've ever really thought about this, uh, but Jesus did not bleed for the sins of some people and then die for the sins of others. He had to die for anyone to be saved. Um, it required his death. Sometimes when I was a jail chaplain, I don't think people meant it in a bad way, but when I would preach in different churches, sometimes somebody might, might come up to me and say, 
I'm so glad that you're working there in the jail because they really need Jesus. Now, that's a true statement, right? And I'm sure they meant well by it. But you know what it can sound like? Thank goodness of that microphone. <laughs> that's happened before. A microphone's gone off. They go, like, ah! Anyway, um, so, but, that, but, but it can sound like what they're saying is, is that I need Jesus a little, and they need Jesus a lot. Now, people who've said to me, I don't think it ever meant that. Uh, but we need to remember, though, that all of us need Jesus a great deal. We're all in that same desperate situation. Every single person was condemned to hell regardless. And that's why sometimes individuals who are rich and or powerful have difficulty coming to Christ. Because it's very humbling. You have to admit that you've, you're separate from God, that you've sinned. I don't know how many of you remember this being said, but we actually had a president, Trump, who said one time, he had never done anything that he ever needed to be forgiven for. Yeah, okay. Now, I wasn't stunned <laughs> by him saying that, and I think he probably really believes that, but he's wrong. And even though I don't know everything about his life, I know what the Bible says. And the Bible says, all have sinned. And so there we go. So, <laughs> so and, and, but this, even, though, even though he did say it out loud, there are actually several people who think that way. Well, he does, but, there's, but he's not the only one. There's many people who are in that boat. In fact, even when I was in the jail, because um, I had people say to me before when I was a chaplain, they say, well, I guess being in the jail, it's easy to present the gospel because you never have to convince anybody that they're sinners and need Jesus. I go, you've never been in jail before, have you? I said, because I would talk to individuals, and I, and I remember talking to many individuals, and I would ask them, you know, because I would get into, you know, what, what sin is. Do you believe you sin? What do you think sin is? And I've had many guys tell me, oh, I mean, I, I mean I've, I've done some bad things, but I've never sinned. Everybody's innocent. Yeah, well, that too. But, but even those, even individuals who admit they've done wrong think sometimes that sin is the big things. And what they've done is not sin. And so it's helping us, to, you know, we need to understand that actually that word covers all the above kind of a thing. So again, at the judgment... The righteous will inherit the kingdom. The wicked will be eternally tormented. There's a finality of the separation of those that are outside the family of God. And it is clearly seen in their lack of a share in God's inheritance. So if you would, turn to Matthew 25. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. Uh, before I go through that, um, I think I gave you, uh, well, I just gave you a couple of hints as to the background of uh, what we're going to look at so we can make sure we have a good grasp of what I'm about to read you. So the background, so this is, this is a judgment that we're going to be reading about in Matthew 25. So the timing of the judgment, when Jesus was speaking, he was talking about a judgment that was going to come after the second coming. Uh, the place of the judgment that he's talking about here in Matthew 25 is not mentioned in Matthew 25, but it is in the book of Joel in chapter 3, and I'll read that to you in a minute. It basically takes place just outside the city of Jerusalem in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. 
and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. So that's where it's going to take place, is in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The subject of the judgment are individuals. Even though it talks about bringing the nations together, the word that is used there uh, throughout the New Testament is oftentimes used for Gentiles. It's, it's the word ethnos. That's where we get our word ethnicity from or ethnic from. Uh, but it is an individual judgment. It's not a judgment of the nations as a whole. Um, and when you read, uh, when we read through the, uh, the, the, uh, the verses, you'll see in verse 32 that it talks about... Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is separating the people, and that's because he's separating them out uh, based on certain categories. Uh, so basically, this is the timing of it then. So the Gentiles that survive the tribulation and Armageddon will be gathered here for judgment. So this is at the end of the tribulation. The battle of Armageddon has already taken place. This, this is preceding the establishment of the millennial kingdom. The basis of the judgment, uh, based on the context, uh, revolves around the treatment of Jewish people. And we'll see that. Even though it applies, um, it can be applied, obviously, in a lot of situations. That's what the exact context is. So you have three categories, which is sheeps, sheeps, sheep, goats, and brethren. Um, so the sheep, that's believers. Goats are unbelievers. And the brethren would have to be um, Jews. Uh, some people try to say that the brethren are believers, but, it, but if that's believers, then who are the sheep? And if that's the sheep, then who are the brethren? Yes, ma'am. That there's sheep, goats, and brethren, and the sheep are believers, goats are non-believers, and the brethren are the Jewish people. So we'll begin reading in verse 31 of Matthew 25, and it reads this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so that's Jesus referred to himself often as the Son of Man, so this is about the Messiah. When he comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, so that's clearly the second coming, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So these believers really showed their faith by their works, and in particular this judgment, because there's several different judgments in the New Testament. In this particular judgment, these individuals, again, who survived uh, the tribulation, uh, are being judged for their treatment of the Jews. If you read through... Uh, Revelation and several passages in the Old Testament concerning the tribulation, uh, the Jews are targeted uh, by the Antichrist for slaughter. He wants them all dead. Uh, they want believers dead, but he wants the Jews dead. Um, and so these individuals are really uh, this, these good things that are doing to help 
the Jewish people that are under persecution is a great thing. Then he says the opposite, which we're, we, most of us are familiar with this. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So those who are going to receive the inheritance, they're the ones we can see uh, that they're righteous by their actions, and so as this judgment takes place, they are then ushered into the kingdom, and they inherit those things that God wants them to have. And those who do not uh, inherit are those who are unrighteous, and you can see that they're unrighteous uh, by their actions. And there's many other places that you can read about where it talks about the inheritance, um, but again, it's a great thing that we are going to have um, as believers, and it's just part of the whole, I, for lack of a better way to put it, it's part of the whole package. You know, that when we're saved, it's not just the spiritual thing. It's spiritual, it is physical, it's everything um, that we're going to receive from the Lord. And it's, you know, uh, if you want to put it in street language, it's going to be really cool, to say the least. So the concept of the believer's inheritance highlights the dignity of the family relationship of the believer in Christ. Um, basically, we receive what Christ receives. Uh, we won't look at the different passages, but one of the things that we need to remember is how uh, this inheritance is going to be given to us as believers. So when we receive the inheritance, the Bible uses phrases that we will inherit what Christ inherits. And what that means is, is that it is not, even though God has a, obviously a vast kingdom and, and what, he, what he possesses as far as his riches is infinite, God is not going to give each one of us a half percent. Okay, it doesn't work that way. Basically what it is, is... Christ inherits everything, and we inherit everything with him. So we have access to all of it. So if I was super rich, uh, I have four children. So let's just say that I, that I was at least worth, that's not super rich. Let's say I was worth $4 million. So if, my, if I leave my kids an inheritance, and I leave each of them a million dollars, we would all see that as being fair and equitable. But if I was going to do it in the way that the inheritance is described in the Bible, I would leave the four million to all of them. And they all would have access to the four million dollars. Now, in today's society, some people think that might be dangerous because they'll start fighting, you know, or whatever. But the idea is, is that they all would share it equally. And the idea with, with what we receive from Christ is that, remember that what Christ has is infinite. So there, there's never a drain on what he possesses. And so then we all have equal access to it. So again, even though there's these rewards that we receive for what we do, when it comes to the inheritance, all of us have access to all that Christ has. Yes, ma'am. Is this judgment that you're reading about in Matthew 25 specific for these people at this time? Yes. That, yes. The ones who live through the tribulation? Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. So, uh, since I believe that the rapture takes place before the tribulation, none of us will go through. None of us will be in this judgment. Yeah, it's just a very specific one. Uh, the, we will all partake in the what, what's called the uh, judgment seat of Christ, 
And that happens just before the marriage of the that, that happens, I think, right after the rapture, um, but before this one. And it's definitely not the great white throne judgment. Now, if you're in that line, you're in trouble. Because that's the judgment of unbelievers. And you're only getting your sentence. There's, uh, remember that when you die, there's, there's no, one, no one is at the gate trying to find your name in a book so you can go in. When you stand before God, God's not there to look at your, at your works to see if you're guilty. We're already condemned. The judgment, seat of, the, the, the judgment of God is only the sentencing aspect. And that's what we need to remember. Yes, Mike. Uh, now, since all the heaven and earth are evil rewards, or is that, uh, I guess that's a whole point of motivation. I mean, I know, I, I think believers sometimes know we're, we are aware we're going to have rewards. I just don't know if that, that being a motivating factor really factors into much. I mean, to be honest. What kind of rewards we get? I know we get a crown to give Christ. I mean, well, I can't answer that in 30 seconds, so I can't tell you. I don't do sound bites. Thank you, sir. <laughs> but if you ever do a study, there are five crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament, um, among other things. But there's five specific crowns. Well, I would agree, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of cool that we get rewarded. I, and now, I really do believe um, that I, I, there's no way to know what the percentage is. But I believe that when it comes to rewards being given out, I am convinced that I would be in the bottom 10%. That's what I think. Amen. I think there'd be many that would be way... Because I think there are those who will die for the faith that we never hear of uh, that will be receiving much more than I will. And I'm, I mean, clearly, I'm fine with that. I mean, God doesn't make a mistake, so I'm not worried about it. And to be honest, there's, and there's individuals who... Uh, I think well, they will clearly be rewarded, and their Christian life was basically a few months long. You know, there's people in, in Muslim countries that when they become believers, it's true, their families kill them. You know, it's, it's called honor killing. It really does take place. We, we know all about it. And um, there's uh, young, young, usually young people, not always young people, but they are uh, killed by... Sometimes the fathers will kill the daughters or the son... Oftentimes, they will have other family members do it for them, but, but they are, sometimes they're tortured and warned to renounce Christ. Um, sometimes that happens, and then they're killed later if they won't. But a, but a majority, because I don't know every single case, but a majority of, of individuals who become Christians in a Muslim state, they all know what the risk is going to be when they become believers. They know that their family will hate them. They know that. And, so they, uh, and yet they still, they still come to Christ. Um, I think I told you a story of the, this man I met uh, when I was in Mauritius. Uh, when he became a believer, his wife was very angry, and she told her father. So her father uh, got her and their children, they had four or five kids, all, they all left him and went to go live with her dad. And I don't know how divorce works in in the Islamic world, I've never really studied that, but they worked it out so that she was able to divorce him. It was probably all done through the father because women really don't have a standing in court. Uh, so he has, so when I met him, uh, his wife and family had left. He had been, I believe, about 10 years. And so the la that was the last time he'd ever spoken to them. Uh, he was kept away from his sons uh, and his kids. He was kept away, obviously, from his wife. And, uh, but he wasn't bitter. Um, he was disappointed and he was sad. I mean it had been ten years, so he was he'd worked 
through to be able to live with that disappointment. Um, but there was no blame for God. He prays for them. He wants them to become believers. Uh, and he's very concerned because he knows if they die without Christ, they, they go to hell. And uh, so he wants the Lord to open their eyes. And he's praying and hoping that uh, perhaps the Lord will let him speak with them. But if it's not him, if it's another believer, he's, he's, he's fine with that. Uh, and there, I met, not a bunch, but I met several individuals who've gone through pretty severe types of um, rejection from family, both Muslim and Hindu, uh, who become believers. And, you know, it's just something we're not used to. Question? Well, we can't do that here. That would take more than 30 seconds to explain that. <laughs> but remember that, remember that, that in the end, that's, uh, uh, if, you ever, if you ever talk to a Muslim who's from the Middle East, they actually like to talk about religion. So it's actually easy to present the gospel. You just listen to what they believe, ask them questions, and say, may I tell you what I believe? And most of the time, they'll say, absolutely. Um, and so they're actually easy to witness to. So there you go. If you know the gospel, you can witness to them. I uh, actually was talking to a Muslim guy the other day. My mother-in-law was uh, getting physical therapy. Mm. And I was talking to him about how, uh, about honor killings. And, and mm-hmm. like, I know that's people. And I was like, yeah, I mean, how do you, ra- how do you reconcile honor killings with your Torah? Or not Torah. Uh, Quran. Quran. And he's like, I can't. I, he's, he was a nominal yeah. believer anyway. Yeah. Which I think most of them are. Well, we just remember that 85% of Muslims have not read the Quran. Exactly. Uh, but the killing, the honor killing, goes in line with what the Quran teaches. Uh, because you are, you, are, you, are, you are saving the honor of the family. That's why it's called an honor killing. And perhaps, uh, and that's why baptism is a big deal. Uh, they want to make sure that if you don't renounce the Lord... They want, I don't want to say they want to kill you, but, they, but, they, but in a sense they want to kill you before you're baptized because they view that as being the point of no, it's too late after that sure. kind of a thing. So um, anyway, we can do more of that later. All right, so uh, let me find my place. Okay, so moving on, verses 13 and 14. Uh, again, speaking of Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when it says that he's delivered us, this deliverance, again, is in the aorist tense, so that means it's a past, completed act. So as I mentioned before, it's this one-time event that's taken place, and it's been completed. So uh, sometimes you might hear someone say this, and it's not inaccurate. Sometimes, sometimes people say, we are saved, and we are being saved. So that's not a contradiction, but the idea is, I am saved completely, uh, the legal transaction that's required for me to be able to go to heaven, it's all taken care of, all my sin is forgiven. But I'm also being saved in the sense that I am being sanctified or God is making us more like his son Christ. We're be- we are becoming more holy. We are, you know, God is, is changing us from the inside out, changing our hearts. And so that, that's what it means by being saved. So it's not that I'm being saved hoping that I get to the end before I die. That part's already done. Um, so I am saved, and it's a completed thing. And that's what he means here by deliverance. I have been delivered. Um, and again, it is, uh, 
not only is the word deliverance here in the aorist tense, it's also what's, what is called the middle voice. Now, the reason why the middle voice is important because it conveys the truth that what the action that's being done is initiated by someone else. So in the context, God is the one who initiates this deliverance. So again, and like everything else with salvation, it all points back to God. So God is the one that moves to save us. You know, when we pray for people to be saved, we ask God to open their eyes, help them to understand, uh, help them to see their need for Christ. Uh, sometimes we ask the Lord to soften someone's heart if we know that they seem to be really hard to the gospel. We ask God to soften their heart. All these things we're asking is for God, uh, through his Holy Spirit, to work in the individual, to bring them to himself. Because that's, that's how we get saved. God brings us to himself. When you think about your own salvation, uh, or when you came to Christ, if you think about the details of how it all took place, I do believe that most of the time we can figure out all the different things that God was doing to bring us to himself. Uh, you normally do not, hopefully you'll never hear this, you don't hear an individual say this when they, when they give their testimony. You know what you don't hear is someone say, well, you know, um, because, because I have a really high IQ, I recognized that uh, I was a sinner. And I could clearly see that. And no one told me that. Nobody helped me. And I evaluated all the uh, religions of the world. And I decided that the God of the Bible was the real God. And so I decided that I needed to be saved. That doesn't happen. What we talk about normally is God's grace. He opened my eyes. He, you know, like when I was saved, I was 10 years old. So when I look at that, I was very fortunate. I was born into and raised in a Christian home. And so I heard the gospel uh, all the time. My parents believed in the gospel. We went to church. It was a church that taught the word of God. I was in Sunday school. I heard the word of God. My, my parents were explaining to me the word of God. So then when, when I was 10 and my mom took me to see the pastor, I have no idea what precipitated that. But when she took me to see the pastor, we sat in the basement of the church, and when he went through the gospel with me, and he was asking me questions to make sure I understood the gospel, I was giving him the correct answers, but he was also asking me along the way, if, as he went through each category, each thing, if I believed that to be true. And in my mind, it was like, of course it's true. I mean, there was no doubt that it was true. And part of that was because of how I was trained, how I was raised. Um, you know, to understand the Bible. And so when he asked me if I wanted to place my faith in Christ and ask God to forgive me of my sin, it seemed like the only, what else am I going to do? I'm going to say no. <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was just a very natural thing to do. And so I can, but I'm very grateful that God put me in that position, in that situation to have all that take place and, and to bring me to himself. Other individuals, it's been different things. Um, I talked to one guy, he was, uh, he was a, he'd been a drug addict for a long time. This was in jail. And uh, he told me, he says, he says, I know this sounds really, really strange, he says, but I'm convinced that God answered the prayer of an ungodly man. And he said, that ungodly man was me. And he told me how he had, you know, he dropped out of high school, kind of went through all this stuff about his, you know, how he kind of ran away from home and left his family and got involved with different kinds of people. And he was selling drugs so he could use drugs and all these types of things. And his life just kept going downhill more. He'd been arrested several times. His life was just completely falling apart, and he was depressed. And, but still, you know, he's doing all the drugs. And he said one night, he said, he's sitting in his living room. He's got the, the stuff laid out on the table, and he actually prayed. And he said he actually prayed a lot before he took drugs. He would ask God that he wouldn't overdose. So anyway, but he prayed. He said, Lord, he said, God, he says, I need to stop, and I can't stop, and I need help. 
And so, he, so then he picked up the needle, and there was a knock on the door. And he normally didn't do this, but he put the needle down, and he went over and he opened the door. And it was the police. <laughs> and the police are standing there, and they're looking for his roommate. And so he goes, no, he's not here, but he's standing with the door wide open. The cops can see all the stuff on the table. Well, that would be called probable cause. <laughs> and so they came in, and they arrested him, and he told me that was the greatest night of my life. He said, because he says, he's, he doesn't know this for sure, but he's convinced, because he was depressed, that he probably would have not used the best judgment and used too much. But he ended up in jail, obviously. Then he ended up coming to the chaplain's program and, you know, heard the gospel, and we, you know, he, we studied the Bible every day. And after several weeks, he ended up coming to Christ, uh, and his, you know, things began to change his life. It was, and then when he got out, um, he's, as far as I know, uh, and I, last time I saw him, a few years ago, I saw him uh, at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, but he was working for an electric, uh, electrical company. Um, as a, he, was a, he was, started as, a, as an electrician apprentice, and I forget what he was doing at that point. But uh, he was married. Uh, he was uh, back in contact with his kids that he had before, and the relationship was good. He was going to church every week. I mean, his whole life was just completely transformed. Um, it was fantastic. And um, so, you know, that's just a, so God com- delivered him. And uh, what he said, and this doesn't always happen, what he said happened to him was that, uh, you know, because when you, when you get arrested like that and you go to jail, you know, they don't say, well, look, I know you're a drug addict and you're about to do some cocaine. We're going to give you a little bit of cocaine to get you through the night. They don't do that. All right? It's just this cold turkey. There's nothing. And he didn't get sick. He didn't, get, he didn't go through any kind of withdrawals or nothing. And he'd been doing it for, yeah, yeah, he'd been doing it for about 10 years. And uh, so anyway, it was just terrific uh, to hear that. And uh, it was clear to him that that was all God. He had nothing to do with it. He just uttered those, that prayer. And it was almost as if God, if there's anything you can do. And I said, well, there's a lot God can do. Question. Well, the thing is, God works stuff that you short-sightedly think is a bad thing. He shapes it. I mean, well, of course, Absolutely. Well, that too. All right, well, we'll stop there, and uh, we'll pick it up next week. Uh, we'll say a few more things about deliverance, and then we'll move on. And then once we get through verse 14, we'll kind of put the whole thing together and then uh, move forward some more. Father Heaven, as always, we thank you for your grace and kindness and for the work that you do in our lives. We do thank you, Father, for salvation and all that you do. We thank you, Lord, that you do indeed deliver us. We thank you, Father, for the inheritance that we have, the hope that we have for the future. Uh, that, Lord, that all, those, all that Christ receives, we will receive, we'll be a part of it, that we are part of your family and that we'll never be overlooked. Our place in your family will never be diminished. It'll never be relegated to a small section of anything. We are, we are completely your child in every way. And, Father, we, we are overwhelmed by that, and we thank you. We ask, Lord, that these things would encourage our hearts, that, Father, that we would... Um, be encouraged and be strengthened and that we would be able to continue to pursue holiness in our life and realize, Lord, that it's, it's not a burden, that it's really for our good and for our benefit. I pray, Lord, that as we seek to live in obedience to your word, that our joy will continue to grow and flourish. We ask now, Lord, that you would uh, take us home safely. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.